Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Golick and Smetty here. Rudolph's father was an asshole. Welcome to Golick and Smetty. I'm Jessica Smetana. He's Mike Golick and... Happy holidays, everyone. Here are some of the best moments of our podcast from the last year. Hope you enjoy. They're really good. If I had a chance <laughs> to catch up uh, with Zeke Elliott to talk a little uh, fantasy rainmakers with DraftKings and the state of the Dallas Cowboys. So, and then for you, a lot of talk this year going into how that backfield was split between you still obviously being the man and Tony Pollard. Uh, getting more more time as well. We see it more and more. I'm sure you've seen it through the, the years. It's now your seventh year in the league of how teams are kind of going to that two-back system. And I know players want to play. Players want to be out on the field. But your thought on how it kind of it, it's kind of evolving into that now with the two backs. Well, you know, I think I think Tony, you know, he's a great player. And I think he's, he's earned the right to, to, to be on the field. And I think, you know, as a football team, you got you to get your best – best players on the field and uh you got I think he's a guy that he needs touches. Uh, I mean just how explosive he is. And uh, I mean every time he touches the ball it's just you gotta hold your breath or the other team has to hold their breath, uh, you know, 'cause you know he could take it to distance anytime. Is there a thing like if for for me it was the D line and we'd certainly have a rotation system when I was on the D line between five, six guys. For a running back, is it, you know, you get that hot hand and you want to stay in the game to kind of keep it going and then it gets switched up at times. How to, or, or is it the running back coach or whoever's deciding who goes in to get a feel of how to use you guys? Uh, you know, I think it's just, I think it's uh, coach Pete just uh, kind of getting the feel on how to use us. And uh, um, I mean, if a guy gets a hot hand and I mean, he's hot, you got to leave him in there. And uh, I mean, that's just kind of how it goes. But uh, I think coach Pete, Pete does a good job of just uh, kind of managing it. Next up on Golik and Smetty, we are going to talk to Trey Mancini from the Baltimore Orioles. All right, so Trey, let's jump into this year where you are. Listen, if from from your career and, and, and then dealing, obviously, with cancer the way you did and coming back from that, I mean, I know you've talked about it time and time again, but just just that trip to where you are right now. Yeah, it's it's been an absolute whirlwind, and it, it definitely took me a while to get to this point and like how I've been feeling this year. Um, yeah, 2019, I had a career year and, and was really on top of the world. And then a year after that, I, I was diagnosed with cancer in spring training and, and had to undergo six months of chemotherapy, missed the whole year. And I came back last year very quickly for what I went through. Um, I didn't have a ton of time to prepare from the end of chemo till the season. 
um, almost more so mentally than physically. Um, physically, I did get tired, but um, I kind of use baseball as an outlet, I would say, to stick it to cancer and, and act like nothing happened. And I wanted to prove that I was the same player that I was in 2019. Um, but that wasn't fair to myself. And, and um, me using baseball as an outlet kind of turned me into a head case at times, I think. Um, you know, I, I would, it was just a huge roller coaster of a, of a year for me, um, and, and rightfully so. But I definitely took this past off season to get my head back on straight, accept everything that happened to me and, and really try to move forward. And time helps with that too. I'm, I'm over two years now, um, you know, since, since I was diagnosed in my surgery and, and everything like that. So I definitely am in a much better mental mindset, but I knew this off season, I needed to um, kind of put that all in the past and, and move forward and, not treat every baseball game like it's a life or death situation because I had actually been in a life and death situation and um you know I would be remiss to not get perspective from that and and I think I've done a pretty good job this year of staying a little more even keel and consistent um so so that's something that I'm I'm proud of that that I've been doing this year much better so you were called up to the Orioles in 2016 and had several years with the team before the cancer diagnosis and then before coming back. So now you've been in the majors for a while and your team is pretty young. How have you kind of found yourself in maybe a changing role with the team? Do you feel like you have more kind of experience and perspective than some of the younger players? And do you, I don't know, does that change at all the way that you interact with some of the younger players? Yeah, definitely. Um, so I was actually kind of thrown into that role even like three years ago, even though I was still kind of a younger guy compared to the league average age. But now I'm 30. So um, with a three in front of your age, you definitely <laughs> you're legit. Um, you know, you're a legit bet at that point. So um, I've definitely bought into that role. I try to help all these guys because we've had a lot of guys make their debut this year. So I want to make them feel comfortable and and because it can be intimidating when you get promoted to the majors, you're playing in front of 40 something thousand people. Um, but it, it's really exciting to see a lot of these guys come up, make their debuts, and they're all doing a great job too. So, um, you know, I'm happy to help them in whatever way I can, even, you know, our, the retirement plan that the MLB has, a lot of guys will ask me um, what they should do 401k and stuff. Um, you know, I'm, I'm pretty well versed in all that. So I try to try to help them out in every facet of the game. Yeah, just so you know, in six months, I'll have a six in front of my name. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. That's, that's, a, that's a great milestone. Yeah, whatever. And yeah. I would not trust you with 401k advice either. Yeah. Uh, actually, I've got a lot of uh, a lot of experience at 401k, a, a lot building up for sure. So uh, along those lines, Trey, how has how the game changed? As you say, you have a three in, in, in front of your age right now. You guys just went through, you know, the, the, the work thing you went through. I've been through one of those as well. How has the game in your mind from when you got in to now and now you're one of the, the uh, vet changed over these years? I think the pitching's gotten even that much better since I made my debut. Um, there's so much more information readily available to everybody. Um, and and teams know how to attack you. They know how to attack your weaknesses. So you have to stay disciplined and make adjustments. And, um, you know, the, these pitchers, they, they don't let up. They, they're throwing a lot more fastballs high in the zone, which are hard to catch up to. So you want to try to lay off that. And, and their breaking stuff is, is really nasty too. So I'd say overall, I've noticed the pitching has gotten better and 
everybody's I'd say like the league has gotten faster too. Um, you know, if you hit a ball to the outfield, um, you better crush it and, and smoke it because these guys track everything down too. So the league's gotten really athletic and, and the pitching gotten really good. That's a good thing to bring up because you have six home runs and I know you'd like a lot more. So saying the pitching is a lot better is a good way to, yeah, to handle yeah. that. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it's, it's been, yeah, the power has been kind of hard to come by this year. The, the ball's a little um, interesting. I'll say uh-huh. that. Yeah. Uh-huh. Ball's been a little interesting. And then they moved our wall back at Camden. So that hasn't been a help either. So, you know, um, I, 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 Trey, I always wonder, listen, I talked about this for a couple of decades doing a show when there are home runs hit or not home runs hit in the ball. I mean, how, how do you, can you explain that a little bit when you, when you make that reference about the ball, because you know what the league says and, and then players say different things of just, just how you can tell a difference. Yeah, I can't speak on the ball itself, but they put humidors in every single park now. Um, so the humidor, um, the balls have to be stored in there for two weeks before they're used. And it lessens the drag on them when you hit a fly ball. So I've noticed on balls that I hit to the opposite field, they're fading and dying rather than going over the fence. Because um, in the past my power has mostly been to the opposite field actually. And and this year, all my home runs are pooled. So, so what I've noticed is, um, you know, the the humidors for whatever reason, I I don't know if it's the way the ball, the way the ball spins when you hit it the opposite way, but it just kind of dies and and hangs up in the air a little bit long. So it's been a little strange, but at the same time, you got to make adjustments. Um, You know, it is what it is. You can't um, sit and complain about it all year and, and, You know, you, you have to make adjustments and whether that's trying to hit more line drives, um, I don't know what it is, but yeah, there, there's things you can do to combat it. Can, can I just ask who the hell thinks of a humidor all of a sudden to say, <laughs> we got to throw baseballs in something where I'm going to smoke a cigar out of? Yeah, I guess. I, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a cigar tool. Um, but <laughs> Yeah, I guess the home run numbers were getting too crazy. And, and uh, there, there's been a big thing lately about the three true outcomes, which is home runs, strikeouts, and walks. A lot of people thought that there was too much of those, and they wanted to combat that by having more balls in play. Um, you know, I can't say I agree with it, but <laughs> what it is. <laughs> As I mentioned, we're joined now by Mike Tannenbaum, who's been an exec in the NFL for many, many years. When you're, like, after the draft is over, when you're a part of, like, a, a, a war room for a draft and you see media members start giving draft grades, right, like, immediately after the next day, and you have access to all of your scouting materials and interviews and, and things that you've seen and they don't, what is your general <laughs> reaction to that? Have you ever seen any that have been accurate or fair, or do you just hate all of it? Well, except when it's good, then I, you know, (laughs) so, you know, it's a great question. You know, it's one of those things where you try, you always say, oh, I never look at that. And everyone looks at it every year. And, you know, or like, you know, the Mel Kuypers of the world, like they started like these draft grades. And I mean, it's really like, if you think about how dumb that really is from a standpoint of like the draft just happened and you really don't know for three years. And what's remarkable is like, you know, we're taping this right after the draft, like take like, you know, Devin Bush of um, Pittsburgh. They yeah. the right. I think he's a really good player. He's been hurt. Um, you look at the Raiders, they had three first round picks. None of them had their exercise option. You know, Abram's a good player. You know, 
Jonathan, uh, Josh Jacobs, you know, Ferrell certainly hasn't worked out, but point being is like, here we are three years later and there's still massive question marks. So how in the world are we going to know what they're, they're like 24 hours after the draft? I I'm always interested and this is, this is the process. You have the process of a college football season that you watch. It could be a few years of tape to watch. And then from basically January to the draft, all these guys are doing are wearing shorts and a t-shirt and how, the evaluation sometimes change. Can you kind of take us through that process of what you get on a player when their actual football season ends and how it changes and why it changes when they're only in shorts and a t-shirt? So um, one of the guys I really looked up to for years was a guy named Charlie Casserly, who was a longtime GM. And I, I asked him quite a bit about this. And, and he actually told me that um, when he would study it over like a 20 year period, that the most accurate grade was the grade that happened at the end of the season. So call it like December 1st. And then you go through like, you know, the senior bowl and the East West game, and then you get to the combine and then you have pro days and you have visits and all that late information, typically not all the time, but it is not as accurate as the pure football grade and what they do on the field in the role that you're drafting them to do. That is where you're going to get, and it sounds so simple, but we have a tendency to complicate things. We also have a tendency to value information that comes in late when we we probably shouldn't uh, go back to like where we were in the fall. And I'll tell you guys a great story. Going back to 2016, I'm in the draft with the Dolphins. We have a good left tackle, Brandon Albert. Number one guy on our board is Laramie Tunsil, and we're thinking there's no way Laramie Tunsil is going to be there. Tennessee had the first pick. They'll take him, and he – was found doing something on videotape, right. spooked a lot of teams. He fell 13, and we fell back on our reports from, like, September. Like, he was great with his mom, great teammate, uh, academic support people liked him, trainers liked him. And we're like, well, if we believe in our process, here's a good person made a mistake. Like, this is a great opportunity for us. He is the analyst for NBC Notre Dame games, former head coach in the NFL, Jason Garrett. The phone call on the sideline might have helped. Yeah, the phone. Have you ever gotten caught? Uh, for those, I'm sure that saw Tommy Reese, who got caught on camera swearing while he was talking to his his quarterback. You ever get nailed on on camera <laughs> saying some some bad words? Well, I'm sure I ha absolutely have saying bad words, unfortunately. But you you, you try to be disciplined. Yeah. You know that when you play at Notre Dame and the Dallas Cowboys, there's a lot of cameras around, so. You try to be good, but it's the emotion of the game. But, you know, like I told everybody, because uh, you get reaction, of course, on Twitter. Oh, my God, I can't. And I'm, I'm thinking, do you all think this is the first time this has been said? I mean, obviously, players get used to something like that. So it's more the norm to them, but it seems shocking to everybody else. I thought it was a really interesting dynamic because you could tell he wasn't comfortable yet. He was trying to find his rhythm. And we had some shots on the telecast where – you know, Michael Mayer coming over, patting him on the helmet, his teammates encouraging him, and, and stuff that he really needed at the time. And then you have Tommy doing that. So I think the mix of all of that, hey, just do your job. And then, hey, we believe you can do your job. I think that helped him. And then he was able to make a play, and then he was rolling. So he's done a great job for him. What about the job that Marcus Freeman has done, getting things back on the rails after that game? What have you seen in your game prep in, in terms of the message that he's sending the team to make sure that they don't lose another one to Cal the next weekend or BYU or, or North Carolina? 
Well, to me, it was really impressive because at Notre Dame, there's a lot of attention. People love football. There's a lot of tradition. The standards are high. And when things don't go well, there's a lot of noise. There's a lot of noise in the world right now, right, that people have to deal with if you're in a high-profile situation. And when things don't go well at Notre Dame on the football field, you hear it. And so one of your biggest jobs as a head coach is to somehow keep everybody locked in and focused on what they need to do. And I thought he and his staff did a fantastic job of that, kind of taking some responsibility for it early on in the week and then probably by the end of the week challenging them and saying, hey, here's what everybody's saying about you. And I thought they responded well to that. It's not an easy situation. So along those lines, you know, we always talk about the, 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 the Power Five conferences. Well, they're conferences. Notre Dame's not in a conference. So they're only playing for the playoffs and hopefully the national championship. And that's what they work for all offseason going to the season. We've never had a two-loss team in the playoffs. Notre Dame probably not going to be there. So how is that? How would you now send the message to the team about that, you know, a few weeks in and what they're playing for, their ultimate goal? It's probably not going to happen. So what do you use now as motivation? You know, I, I think, you know, Coach Saban down in Alabama, I had a chance to work. I worked for him for two years. I was his quarterback coach when he was with the Dolphins. And he used the word process all the time. And process is this word that people use, and now everybody hates people using it and the whole deal. Essentially what he's saying is, let's put a group of people together and do things the right way every day, and let's get our, our, our satisfaction out of being our best. And the results are going to take care of themselves. So I think if that's your message from day one, certainly in the NFL, you want to win the Super Bowl. If you don't, you better get out of the room. You don't belong here as a player, as a coach. Certainly when you're at Notre Dame, you want to win the national championship. You want to go to, you want to be part of the, the, the bowl championship series. That's what you're doing. We get that. We understand that. But you have to put that aside. We have to be our best every day and to help this team live up to its potential. So that's the message from the start. When you have some disappointment and the results that you don't want, you just get back to work. You work on yourself. You work on the process of what you do each day. And I think if that's the message, it's easier to swallow that and keep moving forward. Well, we have a couple more questions for you. Then we're going to play a quick game and give away a couple more pieces of DraftKings swag. But first, I wanted to ask, what is your process for getting ready for calling these games? Tomorrow, we're going to see a pretty highly touted uh, quarterback for Stanford come in, someone who's getting looks from NFL scouts. How are you evaluating players when you're uh, getting ready to call these games? You know, it's interesting you say that. I'm working on my process. And, you know, I've talked to my announcer buddies who do this for a living, and they say they've been doing it for a long time. They're still working on their process. So as a coach, I had a pretty clear idea what I needed to do. You know, on Monday I'm doing this. On Tuesday I'm doing this to get ready. And, and you get into that routine. I'm still trying to figure it out. Uh, the biggest thing I try to do is watch the tape. But then you have to talk to a lot of people. You have to do background. You have to study. You have to read. And you're constantly compiling notes. So tonight I'm going to go back to the hotel, and I literally have a week's worth of notes on yellow stickies, on yellow legal pads, you know, everywhere, all over the place, from all the different conversations we've had. And you try to put it together, process it. What can we really use? You have much more stuff than you could ever come out in a telecast. But you just try to get the background and know them as best you can and then share what you, what you see. It, it is, and I've been calling games for about 20 years, and the one thing that never changes 
the game ends and you look at all your stuff and you didn't use 60% of it. You're like, damn. But you got to be ready with it just in case uh, that, that you need it. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Talking with Eric Winalda, again, three-time World Cup uh, apparent teams he was on. First American to play in top German league, Bundesliga. Scored the, I love this one, scored the first goal in MLS history. That is very cool. Been coaching soccer uh, as well. Certainly worked for ESPN and Fox as an analyst, uh, as we as we have, uh, have talked about uh, doing Sirius XM FS uh, right now, uh, FCFS, FC right now as well. I've, I've asked this over the years when, when I had a show at ESPN. I maybe even have asked this to you a few times. For the men's team, you know, we've talked so much about how the junior leagues in other countries are better than our junior leagues. When is the men's team going to reach that pinnacle again? Are, are, we, are we going in the right direction to eventually be talking about the men's national team? In, in all honesty, kind of like the women's national team fighting for that number one spot. I don't think it's going to take much longer. And you did ask me this question. Yeah. I think it, you and Greeny, it was like, wait, it was like 2000, had to be 2002. Oh my God, that's 20 I years know, ago. I know, I know. We're still talking about yeah. it. You know, one of the, you know, one of the funny lines that uh, I think one of the guys at ESPN once had was uh, soccer is the sport of the future and always will be. And <laughs> that, that one stung a little bit, but it, it, there is some truth to it. You know, what we um, have done, um, you know, over the course of the last 20 years, the league, uh, since it's, um, we started in 1996 and we made a ton of mistakes. We've done it wrong so many times. We've changed our playoff format, I think, 16 times. I mean, it, it, it really is astonishing. And we're trying to find our own way. We're being very American about it. Um, purists like me want us to just, just look, we, it's been going on for a hundred years. This is how we do it. Why, why don't we just kind of file in and find our spot, find our culture and, and our identity and go with it. That it seems simple to me, but we, we're very American about these things. We want to change it. Um, we are going in the right direction. That's the good news. I mean, the academy systems that now exist, Major League Soccer has kind of taken that away from the United States Soccer Federation. So that, that the, the goal is now, you know, when we were kids, although the, the most genius thing that baseball ever did, when we were kids, I was the Baltimore Orioles or I was the Detroit Tigers, right? I, I, I have no idea who, who, what that means. But as a child, I have to ask the question, uh, who are the Detroit Tigers? And that connection that was made in, 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 in our sport, because the kids today, they look up to NFL teams, they look up to NBA teams, and they look up to... Uh, Major League Baseball teams, and and we know more about the rest of it. It took us a long time to get here, where we actually have recognizable brands that people want to know more about, and we still have never figured out a way to integrate the top level to the very the ground level and to put those two together. When we do that, Mike, they, they, things will things will certainly get better. But that's what we're trying to do. Finally, Major League Soccer is trying to connect through their brands with the kids, and. That is so much better than, unfortunately, when, when, when you have kids and they play soccer. 
what, what do we do? We say, well, I want you guys to name yourselves. Uh, we're the bee stingers. <laughs> okay, great. We're, we're the bee stingers. And that, that's where we lose it. Uh, that's changed. That, that we'll, we'll, we're going to see a big change over the next five to 10 years where, where our young kids have an immediate connection to the brands that represent Major League Soccer. And I think it's genius. So we'll see. We'll see. Uh, but, but in four years' time, we, we will be a force. I, I, I truly believe that. That's an interesting point. So when I was growing up, I was on the Chicago Fire's first ever youth soccer team in like 2004, 2005. Um, and so we would get like ticket vouchers every year to go watch them play in Chicago. And we had a connection with that team. And I never really had any sort of like the other MLS games weren't on TV. So I didn't really watch them very often, but I right. knew my local team. And, and that's I think that's really interesting that you bring that up. I also think that like, the way that Premier League now is so accessible to American fans. Right. Could you picture American youth sports teams doing uh, a Man U team or, or a Leeds or an Everton instead of like, you know, Miami FC or the Chicago Fire and having that sort of connection to the pro leagues too? Yeah, no, it's a great point because Beckham changed this, by the way. If the guy did anything right, and he does a lot of things right, and he even smells good, by the way. Um, <laughs> the, the truth about him is when, when it changed, because we always looked at things th in three different ways. What they're watching, what they're wearing, what they're playing. Now, we had always, as, as young kids, we, we owned the what they're playing because you weren't old enough or big enough to play football. Basket hoop was a little bit too high. Uh, T-ball was T-ball. So what do you do? You play soccer. And in that window was what, what we always kind of judged ourselves at. So when Beckham arrived, it was, it was instead of everybody wearing the Manchester United, Man City, Arsenal jerseys, everybody wanted a Beckham jersey. And subsequently, they ended up being introduced through those games to a lot of American players wearing a different jersey. And what we saw in what they're wearing was the U.S. had, I mean, a minuscule number. It was less than a half of, of, of the jerseys that were American. There was about 5% were wearing the Barcelonas or the Real Madrids, and they were wearing that jersey. But when Beckham arrived, that number went up. Not just Beckham, but it went up substantially. And it was something that I think, uh, you know, the, the business side of this took, it, took you know, a good look at and said, oh, how do we, how do we uh, expand on this? And that's why we see uh, the Zlatan Ibrahimovic has come to America. That's why we see Vela. That's why we always see a guy that they get criticized for this that's a little too old. Uh, to play in one of the top leagues, but he's still a big name and he's going to get a lot of eyeballs and he's an entertainer, those guys sell shirts. So, and don't be surprised if Ronaldo ends up playing in America, by the way. That's next. But Ronaldo and Messi are playing their own version of a, a Classico somewhere in, in, in the MLS is on the horizon. But I, I think that's a great point. We, when you look at how soccer's trying to grow, uh, and how we're trying to connect with people and, and get, get more eyeballs, more people watching. I mean, I, we won't have the numbers on the Iran game just yet, but 15 million people watch U.S. versus England. That's a big number for us. And, and I think, you know, and of course, what do we do? We go out there and have a zero, yeah. zero. It's like everything that you don't want happened. But, and then we celebrate it. Yeah. So uh, it's, it's just it would have been so much more fun if, it would have been three to two, and, and damn, we could have lost that game. But at least, at least we would have caught the attention of a lot of people. So soccer is growing, guys, and, and I and I hate that saying that soccer will always be the game of the future. But uh, I think we're finally finding our future, which is good news. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. 
That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Right now, we want to talk to DraftKings as a couple of pods. Baseball is dead and Jared Carabas podcast. Jared Carabas is going to join us. I think for me, it's... It's easier to root for individuals in this World Series. Like I want Bryce Harper to get a ring. Um, I love uh, Kyle I, Schwarber. Know. I'm. I'm. I mean, he already has one, but like he, I'm a Cubs fan, so I root for his continued success too. I, I'm with you. Like maybe there's some other players that you are happy for, and and you don't go for either team logo. Yeah, like like I love Kyle Schwarber too as a Red Sox guy. I mean, he he was only in Boston for half a season, and he's already a legend there. Uh, but then, the, you know, on the other side of things, Dusty Baker. Dusty Baker getting a ring. You know, I think he's like what seventy three years old. Uh, especially after the th- after things went in the two thousand two World Series, Giants, Angels. It would be really cool to see Dusty get his his moment in the sun. But yeah, I th- there there are definitely ways to to have a rooting interest without necessarily rooting for a team. There's definitely big st- like Dusty Baker getting a ring and Bryce Harper getting a ring. Those are two big baseball events. Uh, Jared, you also have to remember, uh, again, you know, with Philly fans, that's where I spent six of my nine years in the NFL, and they threw snowballs at Santa Claus. So, I mean, it's just, <laughs> yeah. it's just, it's just, it's, it, it, they're going to let you have it no matter what. If you're, in a, it, it, They probably wanted Santa to have an Eagles jersey on. That's probably why exactly. they threw a snowball at him. But you look at the way this team was was built. I go back to 2018 when the principal owner, John Middleton, said, we're going to spend big money, and we may even be stupid about it. I think I remember his quote being, and five players and $742 million later, they did that, and it worked. You don't see this amount of players signed for this kind of money on one team, and then it worked. Usually, It's such a cross your fingers. It's kind of like the Rams in the NFL where they just spent money, had no draft picks for the next 30 years, but it paid off. They won the Super Bowl. Is that how it's got to be here? I mean, they're in the World Series, but you have to close this deal to make all that spending worth it. Um, I yes and no. I don't think that they have to do it right now. Like I, I think that their window is uh it's going to be open for a little bit. Like this is not a win this year, all in this year type Philadelphia Phillies team. That's Dave Dombrowski's MO. Dave Dombrowski is a guy that goes out and he's happy to spend his owner's money. Uh, He's a guy that is willing to spend quote unquote stupid money. He did that in Boston. You know, I think, I think David Price was going to the Cardinals for like a, uh, like 180, and he ended up in Boston for 217. So he'll go way over asking to make sure that he gets his guy. He's great at identifying talent, um, which makes me terrified as a Red Sox fan, knowing that uh, the Phillies might go after Xander Bogarts this winter. And if it's not Bogarts, there's plenty of other shortstops that are going to be on the market from Dansby Swanson and Trey Turner and Carlos Correa. Like the Phillies are not done. So even like, I I think I looked at what the, what the Dodgers did. They won the world series in 2020 and then they went out and they, 
they spent the money on Trevor Bauer. That didn't work, but they were aggressive in spending money on him. Then they went out and, uh, you know, they, they do what they had to do to continue to win. They're not just going to rest on we, you know, we won, so, like, that's it. And that's kind of what I, I think we're going to see from the Phillies. Whether or not they win a World Series uh, uh, this October, I still think that they're going to be super aggressive in free agency to continue to extend that window. I mean, with Bryce Harper, you know, he showed up day one. He said, I want a 13-year deal with no opt-outs. Like, I identified this place, this market, this team, and I want to be here, and I don't want there to be any chatter of, oh, he wants out or he's going to opt out at some point. Um, but they've built a nice little core that they can continue to supplement through aggressive spending. And I, I totally – you don't hire Dave Dombrowski to trim your payroll. You hire <laughs> Dave Dombrowski to spend a ton of money, and that's where he is right now. How great is it to spend other people's money? I mean, it's got to be awesome. The best. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's why I want my, your family to adopt yeah, me, Mike. Ask my daughter about that one. <laughs> <laughs> Um, John Middleton also told Bryce Harper that he thinks he underpaid him. Bryce Harper's on a $330 million contract. Is that a true or false statement? I mean, that's true. Like you could, uh, so there's, there, uh, the website fan graphs, you can look at fan graphs and they, they'll take like wins above replacement and they have a way to calculate it like over to, to dollar amounts. And you look at the season that Aaron judge just had and it was worth $93 million. So you want to tell me that a dude like Bryce Harper puts up MVP caliber offensive numbers. He couldn't play defense this year because of, uh, you know, the ligament tear. Uh, but this is a dude that puts up MVP caliber offensive production. And then he wins the NLCS MVP, not just winning the MVP, but hitting the home run that sends you to the World Series. If you were to take the money and be like, all right, what is this worth to me? Get it like a player putting the team on his back and getting us to a World Series. Bryce Harper's underpaid. God, I did, and hit that home run. Isn't that what we all did as kids, man, in the backyard? I mean, and he got to live that. That's just, that's just such a cool thing. How do you feel great on vacation? Like, really good? Easy. You go to Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool white sand beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll immerse yourself in natural wonder and find your center on an island where things move at your speed. You won't just feel great. You'll feel relaxed, renewed, and ready for life. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. The interview with uh, Notre Dame head coach Marcus Freeman. Again, my son Mike and I were able to sit in, uh, in his office for about a half hour and just chat with him. How much has that vantage point already changed for you, though, being in the headman position now where you go from being in that defensive meeting room every day, getting to be at the head of that room? Have you already seen a shift in how you've had to kind of tailor that experience going through spring and summer? Yeah, you have to pull back a little bit, right? You don't have one the time to be the defensive coordinator, right? You can't you can't give the kids the best possible chance to have success if you're the head coach and you want to try to be the defense coordinator. You can't do that. You have to lean on your staff. But I still want to make sure I take care of the player, right? That's kind of what I've done is pulled back and said, okay, how do you make sure your players are set to have success? Players come to Notre Dame to win national championships. Let's, let's, that, they come to Notre Dame to be a national champion. They also come to Notre Dame to get their degree. And so I want to help them. They also come to Notre Dame to be first-round picks. Yeah. Right. That's, that's why they do it. So I want to help them reach those goals. Right. I want to make sure I'm doing everything in my power to put this football program in a position where it can win every game it plays. But ultimately, it's still about 
the players. It's about helping them reach their goals. So I, I'm interested, though, pulling back, which I get, being a head coach, you have to. But, I mean, you were used to be every day in that room. I mean, you're biting a hole through your lip at all. And I don't mean no. watching another coach. Al's, Al's a hell of a coach. Yeah. Al Golden, your new, your new D coordinator. But just that used to be you, and you, yeah. you have to pull back from that. Yeah, you get your – to me, you, you find it in different ways. Right now, I really study situational football. Mm-hmm. I spend a lot of time studying really the last five minutes of halves, last five minutes of games to really kind of say this is where I want to be an expert at. I spend a lot more time recruiting, you know, and, and developing relationships with these guys we're recruiting. And so I find ways to fill that void that was always in the defensive staff room, always working on game plan in different ways. Um, but – I do miss it. I do miss that part of it for sure. You know, you, you said the word expert. And, and one of the things, I know your defensive scheme. I follow it when you got here, what, how you run it. But also how you're known as a recruiter. And I know there are coaches who coach in college that can't stand that part of it. That they got to go talk to 17 or 18-year-olds and do what they got to do. What makes you love it so much and makes you so good at it? Well, I think, one, you got to love what you're selling. I I believe in we're selling young people something that nowhere else in the country you can get, you know, truly the the ability to get the football excellence part of it, to really reach every goal you have in terms of football. But the other side is the educational value of this place and what this place does for young people long after football. And so I believe that I'm selling something that nowhere else can sell. So that's the first part about the second part of it is really gaining that relationship with those young people, you know, what I want is be able to get the right guys into this place that we'll have a relationship, I'll have a relationship with for the rest of my life. And so it's about developing relationships, but also selling somebody something that you truly believe in that will help them have success for the longevity of their life. And we know recruiting has also changed a lot. Like it's it really interesting to me, the time you become a head coach in might involve more change than we've seen in the last two decades of college football with the advent of the one-time transfer rule and the portal becoming an option with name, image, and likeness and the NIL thing, uh, role in college recruiting that we've seen now. For you, I, I want to start with the portal. You guys haven't lost, even in a coaching change. A lot of guys, two transfers, a lot of guys in the portal. You've brought in a couple of important guys that will be contributors this year. But how do you feel like going forward programs are going to have to go about player retention? Is that something where you are actively recruiting the guys you're with? Or what is your strategy and thought process on the best way to make sure that Notre Dame is a place that not only guys want to commit to, but the guys want to stay? Yeah, I think you got to continue to educate them on why you chose Notre Dame, right? We, we, I spent a lot of time reminding our players the privilege they have to go to school here. We brought back guest speakers. We, we, I want them to always understand it is a privilege, not just to play football here, but to go to school here. So that understanding in their head doesn't prevent them from going to the portal, but may, might cause some hesitation. You know, and, and then the other part of it is we have to be able to provide the same benefits here at Notre Dame that schools might be trying to provide our players to get them to entice them to leave. You know what? If our players can't benefit off a of name, image, and likeness at Notre Dame as well as they do anywhere else in the country, then we have to be better. But the other part of that is the pull to understanding the education, the educational value, the team value, and hopefully it's relationships with their coaches too. And with the name, image, and likeness portion of this, because we've seen that has become such an outsized part of the discussion around college football, the landscape around this, it is 
How do you feel about the path that college is going down right now where this has become such a big part of the recruiting conversation? It's it's changed. It's changing, but I'm not the person at the table that can make the changes to get it to has the right. I don't have the right answer for it because that's not what I spend a lot of time doing. I have to understand what the change um, in college football is happening, you know, and so we have to understand that we have to do what's best for Notre Dame. And to me, I don't know the truth of what other schools are doing, and that's not my concern. I know that at Notre Dame, we have to make sure that when you're at school here, great, you got a chance to benefit off your name, image, likeness, but that's not why you come to Notre Dame, right? You come to Notre Dame because you want to, one, be a part of a winning program. You, gotta, you wanna know that, hey, I'm going to a place that I know we're gonna win. And I'm going to a place that no matter when this football career is over, that I'll have an education that's gonna take care of me long after football. While I do that, I can benefit off a of name, image, likeness. But we will definitely, you, one, you can't, but two, you can't entice people off a of name, image, likeness to come to this place, because you won't make it here. You come here because you understand that, hey, I value education, I value, I wanna be a part of a great football program. So on the other side of that is the player now that you're sitting in the, in the living room of the 18 year old and, and his parents. So this not from your side of the school side. And you know, I, you can't blame players in this day and age because they are allowed to make money now. How soon into a conversation can you get a feel for a guy if he's like, okay, he's, he wants to know what he's gonna make if, if he comes here? Yeah, I'd like to address it myself right away. Okay. You know, that's a part of the conversations when I sit down with these young people and say, hey, here's the benefits of name, image, and likeness at Notre Dame. We have a presentation. Jack Swarbrick has an unbelievable presentation on the Notre, the Notre Dame way of name, image, and likeness. But also, I like to bring it up just so right away there is no confusion on how we do things. You don't need to bring up how much money are you guys offering. We don't. We don't, we don't do that, and we don't discuss that. Here's how we do things at Notre Dame. Is this something that you want to be a part of? You know, and so I like to put it out there right away. We have on two college football guests, Spencer Hall and Holly Anderson of the Shutdown Fullcast. So where we are now, we're a little over a year into NIL. See, I don't, I don't think in, in a quick statement about realignment and where we're going to end up, two super conferences, whatever, I don't think it's going to affect college football at all. I, I, you know, alumni are going to pack the stadiums and watch. We're not going to have the, the, the rivalries we had once, but, but we lost some of that in the Big 12 when they went to the Big 10, Nebraska's of the world. I think college football is going to be fine from, from that respect. From the NIL for the two of you, where we are now and where we are, say, three to five years from now, do you think it will be vastly different like, will we actually have guardrails in place or will we still kind of be running the same show? I don't know if we'll have guardrails actively put in place so much as we'll have them reactively put in place by market correction. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah, I think you're going to get, I think there will be a, there will be a series of peaks and valleys. There will be an occasional boom and bust on the value of NIL. Yeah. I think you've already seen unusual things like Quinn Ewers, when you were getting really good NIL money uh, and then transferring and, and then keeping it, which is everybody who... Which, hey, that's business. That's business. That's going to happen. You're, you know? you're watching a little business ecosystem operate in a... Tr it's really interesting because it is so... Because it is so divorced from, you know, so much of the outside world, you're basically watching it operate... A market ecosystem operate in a terrarium here, which is fascinating. Yeah, and I think you'll also get some schools that started slow coming back with a vengeance. I think you'll get schools 
that maybe fell behind. You'll and get are... schools that'll flame out on their first iteration too. And yeah, then like build carefully on the second one. You'll get schools that'll never get it right. Yeah, like I, I think you see schools like Miami, who they've been very proactive and very aggressive with how they've built their NIL structure. Consequently, that's it's weird. I've up... barely heard anything about that. Yeah. <laughs> Anything? No? Wait, I will tell you all about it, Justin. You have a minute. Let me okay. tell you about the influx of Miami. Uh, Justin, do you find the influx of Miami readers and consumers at a difficult adjustment when you join Meadowlark? Because it's still kind of catching me off my back foot. They know not to talk to me or interact with me, Holly. Okay, good. They're smart. Good. They're, they're smart. But <laughs> yeah, I, think I think you'll see schools that got a quick start like Miami. Yeah encounter the natural limitations of their market like miami's not a, like they don't have that much it's not money. a large school they don't yeah. i think they got very organized very quickly and they got a head start that can carry them for a while but i think you'll see bigger schools that have a wider alumni base and more cash start to catch up to that like i think michigan's a great example because michigan um allegedly a little behind in, in nil money michigan has all the money in the world we know that because we run a fundraiser <laughs> and we catch a pretty slim margin, a, a, a pretty niche margin of Michigan fans, and they dominate. When they figure out NIL, they're going to be a force. A keep robust... giving us money, though. Michigan yeah, people. keep giving us money. Yeah, like keep signing us to NIL deals for charity. Yeah. But I, I think you'll see some catch up. I also think you'll see this. I think, you know, hopefully the dialogue that we have about this focuses less and less on NIL because we're going to get a couple of court cases where I know amateurism is going to lose. Amateurism's had its ass handed to them every time they've gone to court. It is not an official case. It is merely a it is merely a commentary, and it's not legal precedent. But when you have the most conservative Supreme Court in recent human memory come down and say your business model is exploitative and has no merit in the marketplace as a fair exchange of goods and you services. You made Brett Kavanaugh have a good point. Yeah, don't do that. What are that's you not, doing? Yeah, that's, that's, that's bad. Yeah, <laughs> like when they don't buy it, then it's dead. So when that comes down, we'll have to see what kind of pressure is exerted by things that are going to make NIL look relatively paltry, you know? It's going to look like everything else. Like too long, didn't read. It's going to look like everything else and that you will ultimately have money in the form of something like a salary, and then you'll have endorsements on top of that. In other words, just like every other athlete. Right, right. I, I like the endorsement now by Hooters. I think they've signed 51 offensive linemen. Um, One of them is the from Vanderbilt. I mean, yeah. how the amount of wings that will be eaten is is going to be just absolutely awesome. So last thing for me, and Holly, this is more to you. Now, you're going to Tennessee. I called the Tennessee game last year, and I got, when I was there, I got a gift for my daughter and her um, now husband. It was before mm -hmm. the wedding uh, for them to use at the wedding. I went to the Smoky Mountain Knife Works in Pigeon, uh, was it Pigeon Forge? Pigeon the Forge, largest... Yeah the largest knife store in the world. And I got her a sword, her and her husband cut the cake with a sword. I bought from that, from that store. That's you're basically a full cast member now. You know this, right? The amount, of time, <laughs> the amount of time that we have spent talking about pigeon forge knife establishments. Oh, yeah. it's phenomenal. Well done. Yeah. Well, Ten well done. Flawless. The only team in America that I will say 100% does everything the right way in terms of marketing playbook uh, presentation and attitude uh, is Coastal Carolina. 
That's the way everybody should do everything. Mm -hmm. They should 100% in terms of the football product, all right? I've said that right now, but w w watch, it'll turn out that like Coastal Carolina is in fact just a front for money laundering and like- well, that would be <laughs> right? That's totally in keeping with their brand. That's a different kind of- How do you launder of... a jet ski? It's that's too a... big. You have to launder cash. It's smaller. It's, it's cool. I don't want to put it on air, oh, but wait, you can, can do I, it. Can I drop a quote here real quick that I think yeah. sums up this experience beautifully? I got a text from a Clemson professor uh, during a nationally, I guess it must have been the BYU game because mm -hmm. how many national coastal yeah. games did we have last year? Um, and he said, "Does the pro?" He had been watching a, a shot of the student section, and he was like, "Do they hand out belly button piercings with diplomas at coastal?" <laughs> and I said, "Yes, yeah, yes." Like this is coastal is. I think Richard Roper, I think, said this about the movie Hot Tub Time Machine when it came out. He said, movies that title themselves Hot Tub Time Machine are really doing you a service. Because you know going in, based on the title, Hot Tub Time Machine, whether or not this is a movie for you. Coastal Carolina makes it very apparent right out front mm -hmm. whether or not this is a team you're going to vibe with. Yeah. Also, there well, are there are no mysteries here, and I find that refreshing. Yeah. So, in other <laughs> words, yeah. In addition to everything else about the Sun Belt, that's awesome. They have the best newcomer coming in, who I know is going to be good in a couple of years, and they have the best thing going in Coastal Carolina. Best best ticket in college sports right now, Coastal Carolina game. Hey, and Watch if they have Sun Belt, and if they have been laundering money for years, more more power to them. They've been getting away with it. So, <laughs> yeah. what the hell? I mean, the coast is right there. All it's not called inland Carolina. It's all coast. Crime is you know? legal. <laughs> oh, guys, Holly and Spencer, this is this has been fantastic. We really, uh, really appreciate your time. It's fun to talk college, uh, college football and and other things uh, as well, like uh, swords. weddings on. Yeah, swords. swords. That was, I, I, That's I, a I, great I, way to launder money, by the way. Let me tell swords. you, that is a, yeah. it was a phenomenal shop. A phen I can't yeah, did you also go to China Knife Bazaar? Because there's a competing store. I did not. I went to that one. Holly, it took me long enough to walk through that thing. Yeah, we ended up, I yeah. ended up getting a, I ended up getting a katana sword, you know. Mm -hmm. But there were so many different That's ones to does. look at. I mean, I took all my time in that mm -hmm. one, so there, it wasn't sword, it wasn't sword store shopping. Mm -hmm. It was one store, you know. And I'm going to do everything in there. But my God, it was, it was impressive. And I mean, yeah. it was packed. That yeah. and they say it's always packed like that. It is for for those of you. For those of you looking to repeat this feat, Smoky Mountain Knifeworks is where you want to go for more of a wedding present vibe. If you're buying throwing stars for your nephew, you want yeah. China Knife Bazaar in Gatlinburg. <laughs> it's more of like a, a Spencer Gifts knife store vibe. It's, I will argue, I will say this, we're both from the state. I think the authentic experience of going to Tennessee is welcome to Tennessee. Here's a knife for your child and some taffy. Yeah. That's a very... <laughs> I, I was born and raised about 45 minutes from Smoky Mountain Knife Works, so I can I can say with, with hand on heart that you, you executed that flawlessly. Well done. Every fan knows the right player in the right position can be a game changer. Put LifeLock between your identity and identity thieves to monitor and alert you to threats you could miss. Plus, with a U.S.-based restoration specialist on your team, you won't have to face drained accounts, fraudulent loans, or other losses from identity theft alone. All backed by the LifeLock Million Dollar Protection Package. 
Change the game on identity theft. Save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash aware.